Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. The Global Public Square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from Washington, D.C. Today on the show... In 10 days, we've gone from a climate change denier in the Oval Office to this. We've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. We see it with our own eyes. We feel it. We know it in our bones. I'll talk about Biden's decision to put the climate crisis at the center of American foreign policy with John Kerry, his special envoy for climate. No one nation can do this alone. Also, there is anger on the streets of Russia. From St. Petersburg to Moscow to Vladivostok and many places in between. And it is directed right at President Putin. Should he fear the movement that's rising around Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny? I'll ask the experts. Finally, I will give you a preview of my latest documentary, which premieres tonight, The Divided States of America, What is Tearing Us Apart? In it, I explore the existential crisis America finds itself in today and how we got here. When we cannot agree on what is true, when we cannot agree on the basic facts that politics should be about, you cannot have a functioning democracy. Tune in at 9 p.m. Eastern on CNN and CNN International. But first, here's my take. We can all now see the outlines of a post-pandemic world. With vaccinations ramping up in the U.S. and Britain, with Israel and the UAE racing toward herd immunity, it's easy to imagine that a return to normalcy is just on the horizon. The only question seems to be, how long will it take? But we might be seeing a false dawn. Despite the amazing progress we've made with vaccines, the truth is that our current trajectory virtually guarantees that we will never really defeat the coronavirus. It will stay alive and keep mutating and surging across the globe. Years from now, countries could be facing new outbreaks that will force hard choices between new lockdowns or new waves of disease and death. The basic problem is in how the vaccine is being distributed around the world, not based on where there is the most need, but the most money. The richest countries have paid for hundreds of millions of doses, often far in excess of what they actually need. Canada, for example, has pre-ordered enough to cover its 38 million residents five times over. Meanwhile, Nigeria's 200 million people have not received a single dose of the vaccine. Rich countries make up 16% of the world's population, yet they have secured nearly 60% of the world's vaccine supply. In a recent Foreign Affairs article, 
Thomas Boyke and Chad Bowne pointed out, Australia, Canada, and Japan have less than 1% of the world's coronavirus cases, but they have locked up more doses of potential vaccines than all of Latin America and the Caribbean, a region with more than 17% of global coronavirus cases. Even though several African countries have been used for vaccine trials, almost no sub-Saharan nation has received vaccines in any significant quantity, while more than 40 million doses have already been administered in rich countries. And Duke University researchers say many developing countries will not be fully vaccinated until 2024, which means that the virus will have years to spread and mutate. In their annual letter, Bill and Melinda Gates note that low- and middle-income countries will be able to vaccinate only one out of every five people over the next year. Like it or not, we're all in this together, they say. The problem goes well beyond public health. The International Chamber of Commerce has released a study showing that this lopsided vaccination of the world will cause global economic losses of between $1.5 and $9 trillion, of which half could be borne by the richest countries in the world. Looking at data from 35 industries and 65 countries, the study concluded that the world economy is so interconnected that having large areas of it still suffering from COVID-19 would produce bottlenecks, frictions, and loss of demand that would affect everyone everywhere. Another study estimates that rich countries would get back $5 in economic output for every dollar they invest in vaccines for the developing world. Despite these realities, vaccine nationalism is actually rising as slow supplies and bureaucratic delays in rich countries have caused politicians to demand speedy action for their populations. European nations are threatening to restrict exports of vaccines and to take legal action against AstraZeneca because of suspicions that it has prioritized delivering vaccines to Britain over EU countries, which, by the way, the company denies. Dozens of countries have also restricted exports of medical supplies, which will seriously hamper efforts to eradicate COVID-19 worldwide. Now, let me be clear. It is entirely understandable that rich countries want to vaccinate their own populations first. But there is a way to act rationally and sensibly without hoarding vaccines and to make policy that will ensure that the disease is eradicated faster everywhere. Boyke and Bound lay out an excellent plan in foreign affairs. They argue that Washington should use the lessons from Operation Warp Speed to ramp up production and distribution of the vaccine worldwide. Washington could build the same kind of international coalition that it did to tackle AIDS in Africa. There is now a global vaccination effort to help developing countries, COVAX, which provides a powerful framework for action. Donald Trump refused to join this effort despite the participation of over 180 nations, but Biden has reversed that decision. He could go further, using it as a platform to demonstrate America's unique capacity to bring countries together around a common problem, to help raise the resources needed, and thus to solve the most pressing problem facing the world today. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week, and let's get started. We're going to start with the extraordinary events in Russia. For the second weekend in a row, 
Russians have come out in a rather extraordinary way to express their support for the jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny and their dissatisfaction with President Putin. Today, protests were planned in over 120 cities across all 11 of Russia's time zones, and marchers came out in force, chanting slogans like, Putin is a thief. They were met with a massive police response. A watchdog group says more than 3,500 people have already been detained. Among those, CNN correspondent Fred Pleitchen, who was later released, and Navalny's wife, who is still detained, as far as we know. Julia Yoffe and Alexander Gabuyev join me. Gabuyev is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment's Moscow Center, and Julia is a Russian-born journalist, currently a correspondent for GQ. Um, Mr. Gabuyev, let me ask you, if you can simply uh, explain to us, what are these protests about? First, they are about Alexei Navalny and the investigation that he has done into Putin's wealth and Putin's secret palace. But also, they are a tip of a larger wave of discontent with declining incomes. Russian disposable incomes have decreased 10% compared to 2013, the pandemic and the economic recession. Um, if you saw the video of uh, the, the, the palace, I should say we are required to point out that uh, the Russian government, President Putin, denies that that is his palace. Uh, nobody knows whose it is then. Um, Julia, explain what Navalny has been able to do. Uh, he's built an extraordinary political infrastructure, but almost a kind of media network of his own on YouTube, right? That's correct. Uh, he was blacklisted from state media, which has the widest reach in the country. Uh, and I think he wasn't fully satisfied with the way opposition and independent journalists were covering him. So he built his own. He also built, you know, and it's on YouTube, which is now one of the uh, primary ways that people kind of cut the cord to state TV and watch independent content. content. We've seen that the video that he produced about the palace has been seen over 100 million times. The population of Russia is 143 million. We don't know that all those views are unique views and inside Russia, but it's still a stunning figure. He has also built a political organization that Americans would recognize. He has offices and staff around the country in cities large and small. In 2018, when uh, when he was running for president, knowing that he would not be allowed on the ballot, he used the opportunity to glad hand, to meet with volunteers, to meet with fans and supporters, uh, for his people to train people all around the country in how to investigate corruption and how to get people to the polls. Um, and how to monitor elections. And he created a kind of personal connection with millions of voters around, or millions of Russians, that Vladimir Putin, who doesn't really, you know, ever come down from Mount Olympus, really have with his people. Um, Alexander, so what, tell us what the Russian state's reaction has been, and what happens if they just jail uh, Navalny uh, indefinitely? I think that the Russian state is trying to create a very delicate balance between repression and overreaction because they see the risks that uh, the overreaction and police brutality and torture has created in neighboring Belarus last summer. So they are rising the stakes and increasing the cost for participation in street protests that not something unfamiliar to us 
Uh, we've seen a decade of protests in Putin, Russia following the global credit crunch. The numbers of protests are increasing. They are both Navalny-led and connected to local issues. And the state tactic has been increasing the cost and starting to unpack a very vast toolkit of intimidation and repression. That's exactly what we are absorbing over the course of the last two weeks. And unfortunately, Mr. Navalny's problem is that because of this very high cost that the state has put for protest, uh, it's very difficult to translate millions of viewers into millions of people on the street. So last week we've seen uh, an optimistic figure would uh, tell you about 40,000 people on the streets in Moscow. That's a large number, but not for a city of 13 million. So it couldn't make a big difference. Unfortunately, now the trend point to the fact that Mr. Navalny will be imprisoned. And yes, it will cause a new spike in protests, but uh, it's very unlikely that it will change the Kremlin's decision or Mr. Navalny's fate. Uh, Julia, very briefly, Navalny is unique, right? I mean, he's very charismatic. He's, though he's funny on those YouTube videos. It would be a serious blow if he were not part of this movement. I think it would be a serious blow. Uh, it would. It remains to be seen if the infrastructure he's built can continue working without him. But Mr. Gabuyev is completely right that you know the state has infinite resources, and all it has to do is wait the protests out or crush them and intimidate anybody else who is thinking of protesting. For the state, you know, uh, this is an existential question. Uh, Navalny is not proposing reforms around the existing system. He wants to tear the system down and build a new one. And obviously, if you're the system, which includes the riot cops beating up uh, protesters with truncheons, it's an existential crisis. And I think Putin will uh, pursue it to the bitter end. Stay with us. Um, next on GPS, the U.S. Secretary of State and the Russian Foreign Ministry have been sparring on social media this morning over these protests. I will ask our guests what they make of those uh, responses when we come back. As the world witnessed a heavy-handed police crackdown against protesters across Russia today, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken condemned the use of harsh tactics and called for the release of the Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. In response, the Russian foreign ministry said, we demand an end to interference in the internal affairs of sovereign states. We are back with Julia Yoffe and, and Alexander Gabuyev talking about today's protests. Uh, Alexander, the last time there were serious protests in Russia uh, after the Arab Spring and Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, supported them or, or made similar uh, noises of encouragement, Putin was enraged. And U.S. intelligence believes that is part of the rage that Putin had that caused him to interfere in the 2016 elections. Uh, is this uh, a parallel? And is the, is the Kremlin presenting Navalny as a, some kind of an American puppet or a CIA tool? Absolutely so, Farid. Uh, Mr. Putin has said it in public that Mr. Navalny is assisted by Western intelligence and that a lot of information, which is allegedly false, has been given to him by Western intelligence services. So it's a very familiar trope and trick of the Kremlin to castigate its opponents as the fifth column supported by the West, forces that are seeking regime change and color revolution and seeking to ultimately topple Mr. Putin. And by the way, these tactics works. Uh, polls time and again show that considerable 
part of the Russian society is convinced and is binding to this narrative. Uh, Julia, you mentioned that this was existential for the regime, but the regime also has supporters. And is it fair to say that, I mean, things could get quite na nasty if you, you, you could end up with almost a kind of civil war because the two sides really now have maximalist goals? Yeah, and we saw this morning a, a, a cop in St. Petersburg pull his gun on protesters, which seemed, you know, uh, an escalation that we haven't seen before in these protests and hopefully not an eerie portent of things to come. But I, I do want to say to your previous question, uh, Mr. Gabouf is absolutely right. The thing is, though, that uh, the Kremlin would paint Navalny and has been painting Navalny to be an, an American stooge, whether... Washington says anything or not. You know, during the four years of the Trump presidency, when Trump and his administration did absolutely nothing to support Navalny or to call for democracy and an end to corruption in Russia, they were still calling Navalny an American stooge. Um, so in some ways, it doesn't really matter what the Americans say. It's not really going to change anything in Russia, and it's not going to change how they smear Navalny and his supporters at home. Uh Alexander, just a final quick thought. Um, the, the back of all this, as you pointed out when we started, is declining economic conditions in Russia. And I presume that at the heart of that is the Kremlin's dependence on oil revenues and the Western sanctions. I think that the sanctions don't matter that much. Yes, they are taking an economic toll on Russia, about half percent of uh, GDP growth ratio uh, is not happening because of, of the sanctions. But I think at the heart of that is really oil revenue. And uh, the sooner the technological revolution happens, that will send the oil price in a knockdown for, uh, for years. Uh, that will be the ultimate blow to the Kremlin's ability to run the country. At the, at the same time, right now, the Kremlin is presiding over half a trillion U.S. dollars in reserves. So it has a lot of currency and a lot of steam to kick the can down the road for a number of years now. Thank you both. Fascinating conversation. We will definitely come back to you as we watch this story. Next on GPS, we will go to that technological green revolution and whether and when it can happen. An exclusive interview with John Kerry, President Biden's climate envoy. Donald Trump called climate change a hoax pulled America out of the Paris Climate Agreement and rolled back some 100 environmental rules and regulations. Shortly after his inauguration, President Biden signed an executive order to rejoin the Paris Agreement. And this past Wednesday, Biden signed an order mandating, among many other things, that the entire government get behind the fight against climate change. He also makes the climate crisis a central consideration in American foreign policy. And central to that strategy is the appointment of the former Secretary of State John Kerry as the special presidential envoy for climate with a seat in the cabinet and on the National Security Council. John Kerry joins me now. Welcome, Secretary Kerry. Glad to be with you. Thank you, uh, Fareed, for inviting me. Um, 
So let me first ask you, um, do you think that we have the time to actually ramp up, not just rejoin Paris, but to do more? Because as you know, many climate scientists believe that the 2050 goals are, are just too inadequate now for the, for the challenges we face. Well, the goals thus far uh, have been inadequate. The goal out of Paris, the goal of, of achieving uh, a 1.5 degree uh, limitation on the rise of our of Earth's temperature uh, is absolutely the appropriate goal. But the current promises of countries through the Paris Agreement are insufficient to get the job done. But you asked, do we have time to be able to do it? Yes. Scientists three years ago said we have about 12 years within which to make the decisions that would avoid the worst consequences of climate crisis. We've used up three of those years without the Trump administration doing anything, in fact, working against those efforts. Uh, so now we have nine years within which we have to make key decisions and actually less because obviously you can't make all those decisions in the last two years. You have to start making them now. So this is the year. We have a huge uh, conference and negotiation in Glasgow at the end of the year in November. And we have nine months now within which to raise the ambition of countries all around the world. And that's what we're setting out to do. And the president has made a very bold, uh, very visionary uh, program to bring every agency of government to this task. Now, in order to do it, you know, even to send a signal to the world, uh, most experts believe the important thing is that the United States get its house in order. And to really tackle uh, the climate crisis and to really take on uh, the, you know, because carbon is produced in so many different ways, in cement, in steel, in plastics, it's much more than just the burning of fuel for transport. You need a carbon tax. Do you think that the United States could do that? Is the simplest price signal that will change that will slowly but surely change the economy? Can we do it? Well, we 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 could do it. I think. I mean, theoretically, yes. Uh, it is one option of of many things we're going to have to consider, uh, and may wind up doing. There are many people who make the point that, and, and I personally accept it, that, that that is one of the most significant uh, bold steps you can take to actually have an impact in a rapid way. And I believe there are ways to do that and make it very progressive to protect people who have to drive long distances uh, to get to work, do things like that. There are ways to cushion um, any negative impacts on it. But here is the but. Um, we really need to do a, a great deal more than that. General Motors just announced that uh, they are going to be moving to pure electric cars, nothing but electric in 15 years. A lot of European uh, motor manufacturers have made the similar kind of announcement. And I think that is the trend. People are going to move to electric cars, which means you're going to have to produce more electricity ultimately, but there are ways to do that clean. So this is all achievable, and I think the important point, Fareed, for people to really focus on is it's a very exciting economic transition. It's a job-creating transition. There are just going to be millions of jobs created with new products coming online, innovation that takes place, technology advances that will help us do things that we may not be able to do today, but it will happen because the demand is there, and that demand is going to 
have a, a huge change in in the kinds of things, the kind of work that pe- is available to people. Uh, nobody's going to be told they have to go do that. They're not going to be ordered to go do it. But the marketplace itself is going to work in a way that makes it inviting and profitable and, frankly, cleaner and healthier and more secure. Uh, you talk about it being exciting and the marketplace telling people to do this. But but right now there are areas where President Biden's actions will put people out of work, canceling the Keystone Pipeline, the decision on no new fracking on new federal lands. Those governmental decisions are going to put people out of work, in fact, already are doing so. What do you say to those people? After all, you were a politician and you understand there has to be you have to find a way to to uh, to bring people along. Well, we, we're, we're a great nation at creating jobs. Uh, we've historically constantly been creating jobs when our economy is growing. Obviously, the first objective to do that is to be able to deal with COVID. Uh, COVID has knocked economies all around the world for a loop. So that has to happen. But but as the president has said, as President Biden has said many times, that COVID actually offers us the opportunity to build back better because the economy has been rocked. As we come back, we will be putting major investments into various uh, sectors of the economy to get it moving again. And if those investments are done in a way, Fareed, that are green, that, that, that uh, are, are looking to develop hydrogen fuel, for instance, or the making of those electric cars, I mean, no, people don't lose a job in the transition to electric cars because the, the car still has to be built. The wheels have to be put on it. The electric, the batteries have to be put in it. And people are going to work at doing those things. So we've already seen remarkable growth. There are 55,000 new jobs in Texas, all in wind in Texas, the home of the fossil fuel industry. The, you know, I mean, this is a transition where the fossil fuel companies themselves I mean, look at BP or Shell or other uh, large uh, fossil fuel companies. They're diversifying. They're engaged in the creation of these renewable jobs now and doing research in carbon capture and storage and so forth. So there are going to be a massive, literally millions of jobs created over these next years. Uh, and there will be a transition in our economy just the way there was in the 1990s when computers and and uh, cell phones and other things started to be created, and AT&T changed. When I listen to Republicans and I listen to Fox News or watch Fox News, the thing that they are hammering on is the Green New Deal, the Socialist New Deal, and a lot of it is attacking these uh, subsidies or regulations favoring green technology. Do you think that the Republicans will come along, and if they don't, is it possible to just move ahead anyway? Well, I, first of all, I laugh when they when they talk about the, the subsidies to clean energy or something like that. Uh, the fossil fuel industry has probably had the biggest subsidies in human history, uh, and 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 those some of those still continue. I mean, they're getting subsidies. I don't hear them complaining about that. Uh, farmers in certain sectors and other people get payouts. Donald Trump paid vast sums of money to try to offset the effect of his ill-advised tariffs. So let's get real here. The, the, the private sector in the United States of America has already made the decision that there is money to be made here. That's capitalism. And they are investing in that future. 
there are going to be huge fortunes made by people who make the breakthroughs in these sectors. The person who discovers how to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it adequately. Uh, the person who comes up with uh, battery storage that is 25 or 30 days of storage. Those are game changers. And, and there's going to be a huge amount of money made in that because the demand is there to do this. And the alternative is that the planet changes so profoundly negatively that life itself is not supportable in many parts of the planet and will be changed forever in others. So the alternative to this is that we actually have citizens paying more money than they would be paying otherwise. Right now, uh, for instance, we paid $265 billion to cover the cost of about three storms several years ago, Maria, Harvey, and Irma. Harvey dropped more water on Houston in five days than goes over Niagara Falls in a year. Irma had winds sustained at 185 miles an hour for 24 hours, first hurricane we've ever measured that in. So we spend $265 billion just to clean up after those storms, Fareed, not to prevent them. So every economic analysis now shows it is more expensive to do nothing, not to respond to the climate crisis, than it is to respond to it. So you're going to be, you know, citizens are going to spend this money. They're either going to spend it cleaning up or building barriers or, or moving homes or whatever it's going to be. But uh, there's a way to do this productively that actually moves our economies forward and allows the United States to push the curve of technology, which we're really good at, and begin to invent the new products of the future, create the economy of the future, make the air cleaner, life healthier, and make the United States of America more secure. Stay with us. When we come back, I will ask Secretary Kerry what he would do about the world's greatest polluter. And that is not the United States. That is, of course, China. And we are back with John Kerry, former senator, former secretary of state, and currently the president's special envoy for climate. Nothing the United States does uh, will be enough by itself. I, th I think the United States accounts for something like 13 or 14 percent uh, of global emissions. And of course, China is the big the biggest global emitter right now. And I wanted to ask you about what your strategy is going to be in getting China to sign up for more and uh, more ambitious goals, because the Biden administration has started out taking a pretty tough line on China. The president and his secretary of state have accused China of engaging in uh, genocide uh, against the Uyghurs. Uh, none of the tariffs that Trump put in place that the Biden that Biden criticized, none of them have been reversed. They're uh, uh, reaching out to Taiwan. So with all those policies toward China, how are you going to get Beijing to, uh, to, to, to cooperate on climate? Well, all of those issues need to be addressed, obviously, Fareed. Um, we have some very real differences, needless to say, uh, with China on big issues, on trade, on uh, technology, intellectual property protection, access to the marketplace. You mentioned Uyghurs and other things. I mean, there are big issues. Nations have had those <laughs> through history. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, who called the Soviet Union the evil empire because it was, uh, met with Gorbachev and Reykjavik, and 
he and, and Gorbachev came to uh, the critical decision to stop having 50,000 warheads pointed at each other. That's where we were, nuclear warheads, 50,000 approximately. And they decided to go the other direction, down, start to take them away. We're now down to about 1,500 plus uh, weapons somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, and many people think we could go further. But, but that changed the dynamic of planet, of, of, of great nation competition. And the fact is that uh, we need to do that in climate now. Uh, the United States and China together are about 45% of all the emissions on the planet. So if one nation or the other ignores this uh, and doesn't join together to try to resolve this problem, we're all going to see these profoundly catastrophic changes take place from the warming of the ocean, the destruction of ecosystems. I mean, I don't need to run through all the list of it, but most of the world has come to the conclusion the leaders of 196 countries signed an agreement all saying we have to move in this direction. Only Donald Trump, the only president of any nation in the world who decided to pull out of that agreement and go in a different direction against all science, all common sense. So we need to come back together, China, the United States, India, uh, I mean, Mexico, Canada, all these countries, Europe, Everybody has to be part of this. And it, it, you made the point precisely. No one nation can do this alone. If, if there is increasingly confrontational uh, uh, policies between China and the United States, if there is what some people describe as a, a new Cold War, does that make it essentially impossible for you to do your job and, and find an agreement between China and, and uh, the United States? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm not going to start predicting the impossibilities. What I do think is we, we, we don't have to go down that road. Uh, I think there are ways, and I think President Biden is deeply committed to and understands how to find those ways as well as anybody. I think he's the right president for this moment, because, partly because of that. His experience in foreign affairs, the relationship that he already has with President Xi is strong. Uh, I think that... Uh, uh, he's going to be critical to uh, helping to get this equation to come together in the right way. And, and um, I think that he has confidence that, uh, that it's worth exploring that possibility before you start going down the road to harden down everybody's animosity and long-term uh, conflict. Are there tough issues? Yes. As I said earlier, there are tough issues. But this isn't the first time the United States of America and others have stood up uh, for values and principles and fought to find a way forward with nations with which we have disagreements. And, and, and I think the world wants us to pursue a sober, mature, humble, uh, thoughtful diplomacy in the effort uh, to avoid conflict in the future. John Kerry, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. America is deeply divided, more so than at any time since the Civil War. Today, the country no longer seems indivisible, as the Pledge of Allegiance proclaims, and the Capitol riot showed us that nothing less than the future of the republic is at stake. We are at war! 
I have a new documentary premiering tonight that examines the crisis and all of the forces that have led us to this moment. It's called The Divided States of America, What is Tearing Us Apart? And it airs at 9 p.m. Eastern. Take a look at this clip, which explores just who is responsible for the ugly, warlike politics that have come to define Washington in recent decades. It's tempting to say that Donald Trump is the reason for America's great divide. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Fight for Trump! Especially after his dangerous rhetoric led to this. This American revolution must take place! People climbing the walls, breaking windows, breaking into doors. But before there was a Donald Trump, there was a Republican pioneer who paved the way for the Trump brand of destructive politics. I am a genuine revolutionary. They are the genuine reactionaries. We are going to change their world. This is the story of Newt Gingrich, the man who wrote the playbook for the modern conservative movement. Newt Gingrich, a Republican, has taken over a congressional seat that's been a Democratic stronghold for a quarter of a century. I've also put together a one-page proposal. In 1979, when Gingrich arrived in Washington, he had a singular goal, to blow up the political establishment, including the Republican Party. Democrats had been in control of Congress for so long, it was called a permanent Democratic majority. It was a very different time in politics, when civility and compromise mattered. House Republican leader Bob Michael was widely known as Mr. Nice Guy. Imagine that. Newt Gingrich comes in with a buzzsaw. What we are living through is a fundamental civil struggle, a civil war fought in public speeches rather than with armies. The Gingrich philosophy, the only way for Republicans to win back power, was to be nasty really nasty. For the Democrats to basically say, not only are we going to rape you, but you have to pay for the motel room, is a bit much. To treat Democrats not as opponents, but the enemy. Newt Gingrich saw politics like war. At first, the Republican old guard shunned him. They thought his tactics were toxic. Gingrich was kind of a nobody. He wasn't a great legislator, but what he had was a knack for stirring controversy and getting attention. Gingrich formed his own brigade, called the Conservative Opportunity Society, to launch an ideological insurgency. They were going to undertake political guerrilla warfare. American patriots. Long before Trump used Twitter and Fox to get around media filters, Democrats have lost control of the radical left. Gingrich had C-SPAN. I'm going to speak this evening on the loony left, the machine which controls the U.S. House of Representatives. C-SPAN? Yes, believe it or not, C-SPAN. You'll have to tune in tonight to find out how Newt Gingrich weaponized that sleepy but vital cable channel. My special is called The Divided States of America, What is Tearing Us Apart? It premieres tonight on CNN and CNN International at 9 p.m. Eastern. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program. I will see you tonight, I hope, and again next Sunday. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.